Hey team, you're about to experience my interview with Larry Ramponi, who is the co-founder and CEO of Viax. Viax is a dedicated B2B e-commerce platform for mid-enterprise and larger B2B e-commerce merchants. Viax has a huge amount of dedicated enterprise-grade B2B e-commerce functionality, such as complex CPQ functionality. Of course, supports all of the customer groups and customer pricing level functionality that you would expect and much, much more. I had a fantastic conversation with Larry about where he thinks B2B e-commerce is headed. Enjoy. Welcome to B2B Commerce Corner. Commerce Corner is a sub-series of the E-Commerce Edge podcast discussing all things B2B commerce through the lens of agencies, consultants, merchants, and more. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the podcast. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome Larry Ramponi to the podcast from Viax. Welcome, Larry. Thank you very much for having me. Really excited to speak to you. That I'm super excited to have you here. And you were saying off air that you're originally, even though you're now based in uh, in New Jersey, you were originally raised in the on the mean streets of the Bronx. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. I don't find too many people from the mean streets of the Bronx in this industry. A, a unique character. Like definitely originally there, my whole family's from there originally. Nice. I tell you, sometimes sometimes being the, from the mean streets of somewhere will help you in the in the software <laughs> development game, right? Absolutely. Toughens you up a little bit. Definitely need some of that thick skin. Yeah. Absolutely love it. And before you, before we talk about Viax and, and what you're up to today, you, you come from a tech background. So you were technical director of ICF, you director of IT for an e-commerce ex accelerator, which was ultimately acquired by ICF. You were co-founder and president of TechMates Group, which is an agency, and you were specializing in the Hybris platform. And I know just how complex and, and comprehensive the Hybris platform is. So Definitely not your first first foray into e-com or tech. Anybody who has used Shopify for any length of time at all knows just how incredible it is for B2C and D2C merchants. However, it leaves a lot to be desired for B2B merchants and brands. That's where Wholesale Gorilla comes in. Wholesale Gorilla is a Shopify app that adds tons of essential B2B commerce functionality right on top of Shopify. It allows you to run and get started with all of your wholesale functionality that you need to run your B2B and wholesale business online, all within the safety of the Shopify ecosystem. And you can use Wholesale Gorilla with any tier of Shopify plan. You do not need to be using Shopify Plus. We've partnered with Wholesale Gorilla and they are offering 50% off your first paid month when you use the coupon code EDGE. We want to thank them for their support of the podcast and go and check out Wholesale Gorilla today. Yeah, correct. My, my background is in technology. I was a programmer, computer science major in college. So hands on the keyboard, firsthand view of the issues that the B2B market and the manufacturers face. So definitely a unique perspective from, from you know, that point of view. Yeah. For sure. That, and that, that brings us right up to the the stage where you founded Viax and you've been doing that for over four and a half years now, for heading up to nearly five years now. And you guys build yourself as you say that you're the modern B2B commerce growth engine. B2B is complex. We help you master it. And 
when we, I, I specialize in B2B myself and I know just how X and there's no such thing as vanilla in B2B commerce. It, right. it, it just doesn't really exist. In, in yeah. B2C or in D2C, especially if you're a peer play, there's really well-established design patterns and go-to playbooks for D2C. If you're a D2C brand and you're a startup D2C brand, it's a pretty safe bet to just say, go get on Shopify, go and run Klaviyo, go and run these five or six complimentary apps and you're off to the races. Go and pay $200 for a theme and load up your products and, and start selling and, and see how you go and run a few ads and try to drive some traffic and then let's just see how you perform. But in B2B, there really is no such thing as a vanilla business in my experience anyway. And I'd love to hear your thoughts about how you even begin to think of building a platform around B2B when there is such a massive variety of the types of businesses that do B2B. Yeah, it's great. It's actually a great lead in the way that you had phrased it, where there's really no vanilla B2B customer, right? In, the, in their journey. The other markets can be commoditized, right? There's a playbook there, but for the B2B side, there's really not nothing. There's not anything there really that you can look to, right, to support it. You know, going back to my background, you know, on these projects, saw a lot of the same issues across all the clients that we work with. A lot of these large scale manufacturers, really complex integrations, the hard to find developers, the really poor, any type of time to market or time to value ROI just was non-existent, right? It was really to me due to the patterns and kind of the software that was out there that was serving this market, right? Or underserving this market in a sense. So the approach that we, we took here at Viax was really to take a step back, first of all, and address what I saw as these kind of eight burdens that we call them, right? First and foremost, to really help drive these clients to be innovative and get out of that maintenance mode. And the approach that we take at Viax, and it's funny, commerce is on our website, but we talk about our platform being much more than that. And, and really the reason that we use the word commerce is because it's just a known commodity, right? And, and gives you a sense of what we are right from the start. But in reality, we're probably don't fit well into that commerce box, right? We talk about software as boxes. You have the commerce box and you have the expected functionality of that commerce box, maybe the shopping cart, the promotions, pricing, those types of stuff, your product catalog, nothing really addressing hardcore issues, really complex products, really complex uh, pricing, the complexity, just the nature of it. Uh, you have CPQ boxes, right? Where you have your sales team and you really have your heavy configurations and, and everything is restricted. The, the end users are restricted to who that box is serving, the, the capabilities within that box. So what we're seeing here at Viax is there's a much more generic process to represent all of these boxes, right? To represent an end-to-end -end process. When you talk about customers not having vanilla use cases, right? We come in and say, okay, let's take a look at your end-to-end -end process. And then on top of that, we really build sophisticated capabilities. So we have a configuration engine uh, that's as capable as most any out there, pricing that you can do an ERP. And now you can expose this to any channel, to any end-to-end -end process. So it's not restricted to what you typically think of that software box and that channel that it's serving. Everyone uh, is exposed to the same tools. The playing field is leveled. Everything is API first. You can include any of the functionality uh, in any existing scenario. In my entrepreneurial hat, would say, I think to me, the word commerce in the B2B space may, not that it's going to go away eventually, but there's, a, to me, it's a newer way of doing things to approach this more of an end-to-end -end process, which is more natural to what the clients are actually expecting. And so what you're saying is, if I understand you correctly and I interpret it correctly is, okay, sure, we've got a bit of a standard playbook for the, the B2C, D2C world that seems to work pretty well. Okay, sure. 
you've got some businesses that that don't fit in the vanilla box for, for BC. And then there's heavy customization of the front end of platforms like, you know, big commerce, Shopify, VTEX, whatever. But, th- but then you've also got headless, fully custom implementations on those platforms if you really need something ultra custom. But in the B2B world, it sounds like what you are trying to do is trying to create a vanillaized platform, for lack of a better term, that has all of the core modules, all of the the minimum, the MVP functionality that almost every single B2B business out there, regardless of what vertical they operate in, regardless of the the custom ways that they might do their pricing. So they might have they might have four tiers of pricing. They might have a unique price list per customer. They might have a unique price list per customer plus trade discounts down to the SKU level. They might have MOQs. They might have they might have buying unit minimums, both minimums, mins, and maxes. They might have they might have these different complexities that are attached to the B2B pricing model. But you feel that by creating, for example, a pricing engine that has almost infinite flexibility built into it, that then that pricing engine now can cater for almost any B2B business in the market. Exactly. And not only any B2B business, but again, any channel, right? Your typical commerce systems are pretty light in pricing, right? You have to rely, and and in a sense, almost all type of functionality. It's a window into the ERP system, right? So what we're saying is there's a much more modern customer-facing way of doing it. So a good example, one of our clients is a major medical equipment manufacturer, right? And they do full pricing within Viax, within our system, because we have those capabilities. They had 180 line item, excuse me, 180 line item on an order. And we were able to price that order in under three seconds, which is completely unheard of uh, in any type of ERP system, right? That you're, you're talking minutes or something like that. And we did, we sent it back to the ERP system. It choked on the order. So there's, there's got to be a little bit of a shift in mentality and, and kind of change, right, to say, okay, we used to take everything complex and put it into the ERP system because that's where all the information was and, and that's really where the complexity lived. Now there's a little bit more of a modern way uh, of doing it, right? And the way that we've built the platform is, is it's a true SaaS platform, multi-tenant platform, fully managed by us, distributed by us. So it can play a major central role in an organization where you don't have to buy 10 licenses to, to solve 10 business cases. You buy a single license, right? And now we could play that entire orchestration engine layer where we're split and depending upon which ERP system it has to go to maybe merge and acquire different companies. It's more than what we traditionally think of box serving this channel in this region, right? where now we built this to really play its vital, central, orchestrating role, almost a quarterback in a sense in, in these organizations, right? Lighten up your ERP system, let it do what it was originally intended to do and do it well, uh, and move that load into a more modern place. And that brings me to the, the next piece, which is that you are a modular suite-based platform. And that, that seems to be the direction that all these larger, more heavyweight platforms are going. They're going to a modular approach, they're going API first. That way, if you decide to do headless or you decide to plug it into a, a kiosk or you decide to plug it into whatever, then you know, you're know you ready to go out of the box without heavy customization of the front end required to do right. that. But there are two pieces I'd like to unpick a little further that it appears that you offer inside your platform. And I'd love to get your thinking on A, why you included this functionality in the platform, but B, how common it is that you're seeing this need in the market for these two modules in particular. One is 
One is it appears you've got a lightweight PIM system in your platform, and it appears you've got order management and order orchestration in your platform. And in the B2B world, in the B2C, D2C world, sure, especially for a mid-enterprise and larger business, I see that they almost all have a PIM, or at least they're all contemplating a PIM, and that's why they come to me, because they're starting to get to a catalog size, scale, and complexity that they absolutely need it. But in B2B, it's almost a must-have from day one with most B2B brands. I don't want to say all. But certainly for most B2B brands from day one, they have generally pretty complex products. So they've got spec sheets, they got PDFs, they got super complex product attributes, they've got multiple categories of products. And usually both of all of those categories tend to be pretty complex. And then you have and then you have the order management side, which is the order routing side of B2B can really get complex really fast, especially if they're a distributor and especially if they don't carry all the stock in their own warehouses, then there has to be super complex order routing to perhaps three or four different suppliers. And in some cases for the same SKU, they might have two or three suppliers for the same SKU even. Plus they have a mixture of owned facilities, three PLs and supplier facilities and being able to track inventory across all those plus distribute the orders in a multifaceted way starts to get those two areas of, of B2B in particular, the the needs around product and the needs around order orchestration generally are, are orders of magnitude more complex than B2C, D2C. And it feels like that may be one of the reasons why you try to take this on in your own platform because of the complexity that would typically exist and the number of systems that you would typically have to integrate with your B2B commerce platform to make all this work. So you just did the sales uh, pitch for Vax. So I think that was perfect there, right? So I'll start with uh, the order management, the orchestration piece, and some of the areas where I feel like these other competitors fall flat. So one of the things that we, so I'll take a step back and, and get a little theoretical about how we approach things. So this idea of the generic end-to-end process is what we call this one order concept, right? So we don't, we, we call commerce, CPQ, whatever it is, your custom end-to-end process, just use cases within our system, right? Because if we built towards commerce, we now you're talking about updating and it doesn't fit exactly what you need. We make this process of creating your end-to-end process trivial, then that's a win, right? And that's fully supported. We can make it custom, you know, the way that you want it. But what we really specialize in is this idea of orchestrating or orders across different systems, warehouses, ERP systems, partners, those type of things, right? So we, one of our capabilities within our system is called product sourcing. And we have a client that has built an entire marketplace and using product sources. Product sources for us could be ERP systems, they could be stores, they could be third-party vendors. You may have installation products, they might be different installers, service products. And then we allow you to have preferences, right? You can have geolocation preferences, highest, lowest price, and you can create your own custom type preferences. And then based on these preferences and the inventory that tells us which is the source, we can split orders since we have the deeper knowledge and capabilities, it's a, a lighter warehouse management system in a sense, right? But now you have maybe a third-party vendor who's doing your installation or maybe supplying a product. You have this part of the order going to this ERP system, this part of the order going to a warehouse. And we have all those routing rules, right? We have that based on the inventory. But what we also have is the ability for each one of these parties, right, to interact on this order. We call those business interactions. So now there's a single place, right, or through our APIs, that all of these parties have their sub kind of interaction into this order, right, which is not really found out there in the market. So if I'm a third-party vendor or if I'm selling a product on your system and I come in and I look at this order, 
I'm just going to see the subset or that product that I'm really responsible for. So that really reduces the complexities of the viewing, right? And the workflow of all the suborders, the sub interaction. So you can get really complex. Uh, one of the things, not one of the things, but our, our architecture is really built to support that, right? Where I feel like a lot of platforms leave you to fend for your own ESB and, and all these companies building these service oriented architectures, which never work out. Manufacturers are not technology companies in a sense, right? They shouldn't be building their infrastructure. We're in a completely event-driven architecture, right? So anything that happens within that order, every single change, we can fire events, fire other events. We also have an entire process uh, and workflow orchestration engine, asynchronous, synchronous. So the ability to synchronize these orders, split them, to, it's all built within the platform. You don't have to go and find a third-party tool, right? And a good example, when we were on site with a client um, a couple of weeks ago, and their ERP system went down, right? They do full pricing within Vax and do all their complex products. This is a B2B distributor. Business remained completely uninterrupted, right? Because we have these capabilities in architecture to retry ERP when it's back online, we'll send the order down. And so those are the things we bring it to the table. But, you know, the, the facilitation of orders and splitting of orders, that, that's really where, where we play, right? If, you, if we have a client in there, but we just need a mess tool, we're probably in the wrong room, right? We, we, our ideal client is more looking at, okay, here's my initial use case, but I see you guys fitting in all of these different areas. Maybe have five CPQ systems, right? Which we've seen three or four configure engines. How do I unify that in you? And now, like you had mentioned, how do I know where my inventory is? Well, we have those capabilities, right? Across all the different systems to see a single unified view of inventory. And then another, which a lot of these issues, you hear them and it's, oh man, is that really a challenge? Just, just to sell cross brands. Right. You again, you merge, you've acquired another company, and now I want to be able to sell brands together. It's a challenge out there, right? It's not easy. So, why we have a PIM is for that reason, right? To really handle the complex products, to unify you across whatever it is, the end to end process. We don't need to be the master of your product information. We can be if you want us to be. And not to get too technical, but one of the things that we do, and again, just based on our background, is we have what's called schema mapping, right? So a good example is, and I'll, I'll go away from the product for a second, but Salesforce, right? You have all your organizational data in Salesforce. They expose everything via an API. We just point our schema at that API and the data feeds through the system as if it's running and living within the system, but there's nothing living within by. And we could do the same thing with PIM, right? And you could do partial data because we have a PIM. It's not, it's not forced on you. We don't, you don't have to use it. But the reason we have a lot of these tools is one of the biggest challenges I saw when I was sitting on these projects. It's when you don't have that natural system within your system, there's a big integration effort. You're almost ripping apart the software itself just to get data to a system. But the data looks like it's flowing naturally within the system. Everything else operates the way it should instead of having, okay, I'm using a external PIM. I need to integrate somehow. What are all the downstream effects, right? So we try to handle as much of that as possible. I'm fully understanding we're always going to play with other systems involved, but try to mitigate that as much as possible. And I feel like one of the areas that naturally leads into is the CPU functionality. Yeah. And for those that perhaps maybe come from the, they come from the B2C or D2C world, they don't normally have to deal with super heavy CPQ functionality for those out there that perhaps don't know that terminology. Configure price quote is a very common use case within the B2B world. And it's mainly due to the complexity of products and the, and the complexity of the way products are sold into a B2B customer. And we can think of this 
for those that from the B2C, DTC world, we can think of this in uh, probably a couple through a couple of different lenses and, and analogies. One is the concept of a bundle or a kit. That's probably the, the more common terminology in the B2C, DTC world and being required to pick two or three attributes of a product before it defines which product gets added to the cart when you go through that normal B2C buyer's journey. In the B2B world, this starts to get exponentially more complex, primarily because when we're thinking of bundling or kit or kitting or configuring a product, oftentimes there is multiple parts to a product that we may or may not deliver directly as a B2B business. So there might be, okay, I need to configure these components for my, you know, my satellite kit install, for example. But then there's the configuration component, then there is the installation component, then there's the aftercare component, then there might be insurance associated with that. Exactly. So there, there are, there is a workflow that has to be represented on the front end to the buyer that says, okay, I'm buying this component. I'm buying this service layer. I'm buying this warranty component layer. I, and only once you've gone through maybe five or six steps of configuring your product, does it then define and what ultimately results in usually a, a skew that is a composite skew. And that composite skew is effectively a virtual skew composed of these different components or these different items that each would normally have their own skew in the B2C, D2C world, but they don't exist. Those skews do not exist in the B2B world until you've configured your product. And so that's where the complexity comes from, right? These skews as configured don't usually exist until they're configured by the buyer. And so that's where the challenge comes in because you've got this concept of a virtual skew or of a kitted skew that then has components of that skew that if you reverse engineer that skew, you know exactly what uh, is composed that order. It's, it's almost like a, a bill of materials. It, it effectively creates what is known as a bill of materials in the B2B world, where when it goes to fulfillment, okay, we can parse this skew that, that this customer has bought. And we now know, okay, it's composed of this bill of materials of these items, these five items from our warehouse. Plus we're gonna have sent, send components out to a service vendor and an installer, et cetera, et cetera. So CPQ, whilst on the surface, sounds like it's super simple. In the B2B world, it suddenly gets exponentially more complex because of the way that you mix products and services very commonly in the B2B world. So do you, maybe you want to speak to how you even began to think about what a CPQ module needs to look like for your average B2B merchant when there's no such thing as an average B2B merchant. And CPQ is really the impetus of starting bikes, right? I was on a project where this, another major manufacturer, and it was a CPQ platform, $250 million implementation, right? Built really complex. Every SI you could think of was there. At the end of the day, you hit the save button and it took about 10 minutes to reprice a quote, right? So there's, there's a lot of complexities around CPQ and it's usually our foot in the door because it, it most represents that end to end process, right? There's a workflow associated to it. There's different parties involved, right? There's the end customer. One of the major issues with it is, and we, again, we talk about the boxes is that really heavy configuration is restricted to your sales team. Can you really expose that to maybe a indirect uh, sales team? Can you expose it to a partner? Can you expose it to an end customer? And that's really the, the problems that we're trying to solve is unifying that experience. And that, that's what we really drive to. In terms of the configuration, yeah, we, you may be configured a, a, a tractor, right? That has hundreds of lines on a bomb, right? And all different pricing. And, and a lot of the challenges for that is these customers, what they call ATP, right? The availability to promise, because as you're going through this configuration, you want to know, 
okay, it's going to come in a month. But if I did it this way, maybe it's going to come in two weeks, right? That's super, super important for these clients and a, and a major challenge right now. The pricing as these things are happening. And again, how do I, I have maybe pricing in ERP? I have products over here. The CPQ system doesn't care. Somehow you got to get this information to it, right? There's not a natural app that says, okay, use this pricing for, there's some sort of integration that's going on. The other part of it that we do is the guided selling piece, right? The same engine that supports our configurator, product configurator, we use to do guided selling. So now you can tell your customers, all right, give me some information about what you're looking for. And maybe that kicks off the workflow itself, right? Okay, I need a tractor and it's going to be on this type of condition and these type of fields and this type of, and then a salesperson actually has a bit of an educated customer and an education on what they're looking for versus that workflow that lives within that system. And maybe I'm passing back and forth a PDF or an Excel spreadsheet, which we've seen a lot of. The ability to digitize that entire workflow and reduce that complexity and reduce the sales cycles. The ideas of bombs, right? So you had mentioned a five-line bomb. Maybe in a manufacturer, there's hundreds of lines of bombs, right? But how do you take that a level up and have a representation of that's more understandable for your customer? Maybe a wheel on a car is made up of 10, 10 line items, the nuts, the bolts, the rim, the, but your customer only cares about it as being a wheel, right? So we have what we call sales solution bombs, right? Which can then be further exploded out to manufacturing bombs. Like I mentioned, it's probably the use case that we see the most, right? When we get our foot in the door. And it's also, to me, one of the systems that's probably most abused in a sense because it supports a workflow. So when I have a workflow and maybe it's not CPQ, maybe it goes directly to an order and maybe it's, they're looking to that system because that's really that all that it could, that supports it right now. By taking that end-to-end -end process approach, I think we, we lend to CPQ use case very well. The other challenge I see a lot out there is none of these guys have one configurator, right? They have this legacy configurator that configures these type of products. And then they have another configurator that configures these type. And to get that on the same code orders is challenging, right? So to unify that type of experience, I think is, is beneficial for the, for the customer. And I feel like that is a natural, it makes a natural fit with a lightweight PIM, you're probably not, you, I don't think you would tell me, Jace, we compete with the river sands and the in rivers of the world. We don't compete with the dedicated PIM systems, but we have enough PIM functionality to be able to drive the CPQ functionality, which then drives the order management functionality because they're, they are one in the same. They have to be as close to each other in terms of communication as possible, because as you're going through the CPQ process, you need to be pulling detailed product data into that experience layer. Uh, as they're configuring the product. And then once the the bomb, the virtual bomb is created at the back end of the of the CPU process, then we may have on the one item, we may have uh, five order routings that have to go on the back side of that to go to all the different parties that have to fulfill the components for that. And they have to get information back into the system as they're fulfilling it too. So that you then can own the entire transactional communications layer with the end customer. Because the end customer doesn't care if that tractor has 50 different suppliers associated with it. They, they only care about you as the merchant of record that actually sold it to them and are actually going to bill them for that product once it's fully fully assembled, for lack of a better term, and shipped to them. They, they only really care about that. And so you need to be the single source of truth for all communications around that product. And the only way you can be that is to be getting all the aggregate information from the different third parties that are working with you to get that tractor put together for them and then you're sending the transactional emails. You're giving them updates uh, throughout the entire process so that it's transparent for the end uh, B2B customer. So it feels like that's a biggie. 
But another piece that seems to be coming, be becoming more common in the B2B world is subscriptions. Because oftentimes these B2B buyers, whether that's going to be a B2B customer that on-sells it via retail or maybe on-sells it in a B2B way themselves. So let's say you're a manufacturer and you're selling it B2B to a distributor or wholesaler, then they're going to on-sell that to either other businesses or they're going to on-sell that to end consumers. But it, it feels like in that model, oftentimes we are starting to see more consistent, regular and routine orders in the B2B world than, than we ever have before. And so all of a sudden now, what used to be almost exclusively the domain of B2C and D2C, which is that holy grail of orders, which is the subscription order and the guaranteed revenue or nearly guaranteed revenue that goes along with that. Now that concept is making its way into the B2B world because if you're, I don't know, let's say you're a mall operator, right? And for a fact, I'm going to go through 10,000 rolls of toilet paper a month and I'm buying off of my toilet paper supplier, then I'm going to want that to be on a subscription because it makes no sense to have my procurement team get a message from the cleaning team and say, oh, we're down to the last, we're down to the last 200 rolls of toilet paper. You better bloody order us some more. Otherwise we're going to be out. And you don't want, you don't want people that are pretty down, far down the food chain in terms of consuming the product to then have to integrate in with a, a system that maybe they have no experience with. Maybe they're non-technical, et cetera. So all of a sudden this concept of subscriptions feels a lot more native in some respects in the B2B world than it does in the B2C world. And because there's so much repeat ordering that happens in the B2B world based on triggers, right? It's usually triggers, whether it be from their procurement system or it's a trigger from their ERP. And so it just makes sense for those subscriptions to live in the commerce engine. Yeah, absolutely. So we support subscriptions in the complete end process. They'll be able to take the payments, the invoicing, all those type of things. But one of the really key areas that we support within the system this idea of what we call product 360, right? Traditionally, you would think about it as an install base. So say, for example, I, I've quoted you this tractor, right? I've built it. I've, that, that sales process shouldn't necessarily end, right? So now we have a record of that actual SKU, that serialized product that this person owned and maybe it was sold to this guy and now it's sold to this guy. And now you can start to really be proactive on exactly what you're talking about, right? So we have a lot of clients or clients that we're speaking to that wanted move to a product as a service completely, right? These big manufactured parts and, and they know maybe that this has a life cycle of eight months and they want to be more proactive on generating the next kind of sales order or putting on a subscription kind of a calendar. But the idea of understanding who owns what's out there in the field, this part has a, this maybe motor has a, you know, year life cycle, whatever it is. And then what really comes into play is the IOT information that we get and we can start being really predictive, right? We did this POC with a heavy equipment manufacturer and they have equipment throughout North America and they would send us 4 million messages an hour, right? This IOT information and we'd get it. We'd run it through machine learning and some AI and categorize each one of these messages. And what it was able to do was give their distributors the ability to create subscription services around different types of messages, right? So now my fleet of tractors that are out there in the field. I can subscribe to maintenance site messages. I can subscribe to performance site messages, right? And now you have a different uh, revenue generating service because you're using that you're making use of that IOT information. And now with us, all this, all these selling tools and these processes are living within the same system. It makes it much more natural to be able to do those sales, the cross sales. This part's being replaced by this part. You're going to have to look at this in about a year or so, extending it beyond just the idea of a, a product in a product catalog. 
but actually a serialized product, something that's real and out there in the field, and then everything around associated around that. I think you speak to a good point. Let's unpick this a little bit more. So I, I want to get back to that whole process in the IoT piece, because I think that's something that people maybe aren't familiar with, and, and it would be useful to unpick that a little bit more. But the other piece is in the B2B world, we've got things like product recalls. We've got things like product replacements. We've got things like uh, consumption and use-based upgrades and, and warranty work that, that need to be done. We've got scenarios where the, the, the whole replayer, replace, repair, replace, maintain model is a, a very well-known model in, in many verticals in the B2B world. And a lot of that comes back to telematics. It comes back to IoT, which is Internet of Things, which means that the device itself is living in the sense that there is a whole suite of sensors and control systems and consumption-based meters and hour usage-based meters. And when something gets to a, a certain state of where you may have a sensor that says, okay, this now needs to be replaced and it sends a message off. And then obviously the aggregation system will oftentimes have a series of web hooks or messages that you need to listen to. And, and so we're now getting into, we're, we're now getting into an area where a lot of these concepts don't necessarily exist in the B2C, D2C world in the same way. And so you may be aggregating, you may be the system of record for when the initial product was sold, but then you also need to integrate in with the B2B customers systems, because they might have telematics, for example, on a piece of heavy equipment that see you on that tractor, maybe not only tracking hours, but it may be tracking PSI on a, on a tire, or it may be tracking, uh, it may be tracking something like something like internal PSI on a hydraulic system so that when something needs to be fixed or changed or swapped out or a valve needs to be replaced. Or how efficient is that machine being dri driven? Is it the patterns it's going in? Stuff like that. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so you now need to be almost the font of all knowledge in a way because you've got not only incoming messages from these systems because you were the original system that sold that complete system or component. But now you need to be gathering information in an inbound way so that you can then trigger off further purchases against that product where those orders then need to be routed to maybe a field services team to where in, 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 instead of just a product or, okay, we now know we need to send out another 50 liter jug of hydraulic fluid for this tractor. It's not just that. Now we need to send out a field service rep to meet at the job site where the hydraulic fluid is being shipped to, or we need to ship that hydraulic fluid to the service partner, the field service partner, and then they take that hydraulic fluid out to that tractor. It's serialized, it's got the serial number on the tractor, they can identify the tractor on site, they can plug in their ODBC system into the ECU of the tractor and they can get all the information and they can do all the work right on site right there, plus do an inspection. And in some cases, during that inspection, they may find other things that need to be fixed or replaced or upgraded on that tractor. And they need to send the message back to your system. So you become almost, we could get into the nuances of this, but for in simplistic terms, you become the forever traffic cop associated with that product in terms of inbound and outbound data and what the hell to do with it in certain scenarios. Yeah, and providing a unified view of that entire process just laid out. Think about all the different parties involved, the products, the motion, the shipments, the deliveries, the, the workflows associated with each of those. So the way that we design the system to handle these generic end-to-end -end processes, that's all they really are for us, right? So it's simple for us to model any one of these workflows out, but really provide that provide view for your customer, yeah, which is ultimately what you want to be able to do. Yeah, so it naturally fits into the platform. 
plus the event driven architecture. So anything that comes in the system fires an event, you know, you can listen to certain events, you can register certain handlers in any language you choose. You're not restricted to a certain set of languages. Yeah. All those things well supported within the platform. Yep. And finally, I think let's talk a little bit about one of the final modules that you guys have, because I'm seeing this more in the B2B world and I'd love your thoughts on it. We're seeing marketplaces, just as we saw marketplaces sweep the B2C, D2C world and Amazon and eBay and FAIR and all the others, where we're now seeing uh, and FAIR being a prime example of a B2B marketplace, where now it's not just B2C, D2C that gets to play in the, in the marketplace world, it's, it's now the B2B space. And we're starting to see more and more B2B transactions take place on a marketplace than ever before. It really, the company that really, I think, blazed the trail on this was Alibaba first, really. And then we, st we started to think of Amazon and the progenitor of Amazon Supply and now Amazon B2B and how they've interwoven that B2B marketplace experience in with the B2C and D2C marketplace experience. We've got dedicated B2B marketplaces now. We have a lot of B2B sellers, brands, manufacturers, wholesalers, distributors that now want to replicate the endless aisle model that came, the whole idea of endless aisle came from the B2C, D2C world. It didn't come from the B2B world. But now we're cross-pollinating that exact concept into the B2B world. And in order for most B2B brands to adopt this, it's a super heavy lift because that inventory that they don't carry in an owned warehouse or in an owned 3PL now, all of a sudden, they have to be pulling inventory numbers from suppliers who are going to ship directly to the end customer. And you might have an order that has five items, but five suppliers. And you might be a supplier of only one of those items yourself as a B2B vendor. And so now we've got multi-vendor management that has to be managed under one room and under one tech stack. And as I understand it, you guys do offer that. And all of a sudden, this now starts to look a heck of a lot like multiple multi-location inventory, but with the added complexity that you want the third party that's going to be doing the fulfillment to be able to manage their catalog within your system. Absolutely, right? So that for us is vendor managed catalogs, right? So we have the ability to give each of these vendors the ability to manage their own portion of the catalog. So there's really two kind of the marketplaces that we're talking about. Maybe a manufacturer or a B2B customer wants to start their own marketplace, right? That's one scenario. And then you have the Amazons of the world and, and the kind of established marketplaces there. So for us, if you want to start your own marketplace, one, what does that really mean to you? Are you really going to allow competitive products onto your platform? Are you most likely what that means for these established manufacturers is supplemental type products, maybe services, installation, those type of things, which we handle very well. We have commission models within our platform, costing models. The real challenge that we see at Vikes with the marketplaces is, is the complex products, right? They're not support, they're not really supporting these heavy configurations, right? Or what if I wanted kits and bundles and, and based on where you are contextually in the world, the region, this and that, I get different options. Maybe I get different pricing. Those things just really necessarily aren't supported with the current marketplace options, right? Basic, here's my inventory and here's my prices. And yeah, I get this from. So where we really differentiate ourselves is the ability to support that complexity, right? Where you can have a marketplace, you can supply a marketplace, you can have your own. And again, that experience is exactly the same. Plus with us, there's not an additional license to be able to support that use case, right? Now you're introducing probably a new system that has a GMV take rate associated to it. So the, that thought of the marketplace becomes a little less enticing, right? With the, the kind of entry fee, the entry barrier, what am I really supporting? 
those type of things. So for us, it's again, a use case that you just use several capabilities of ours to, to accomplish. And then again, we have the visibility to each of the vendors, the interactions into the orders, and then the workflow into the sub interaction. So yeah, it's definitely use cases that we support. And what do you see as the areas that maybe you don't do so well today, or you don't do it all, you don't touch, and you've got some customers that are saying, hey, love your system, but we need it for this vertical, or we need it to do this use case that you yep. don't yet support. Or what are some of the use cases that you already say, look, we, in order for us to attack this new vertical that we want to excel at, we need to add this functionality, these use cases to our platform. Otherwise, we're never going to get traction in that vertical. Is there anything that you look at over the next 12, 18 months that stands out as areas where you go, look, we're, we're either weak or we don't do this at all. And we, we're, within the next 12, 18 months, we won't be weak there anymore. We, we will do this and we'll nail it. So for us, like the goal was always to take a look at what's done in ERP right now. And what, what is that division line, right? Uh, what should be in ERP and what should be in a more kind of this moderate customer facing type platform? I think some of the warehouse management stuff, we'd like to be able to get that data and, and present it in a more customer facing way to a certain extent, right? We're not a warehouse management system where we're never intended to be a warehouse management system, right? Those, those already exist, but really more of looking at what it is that we can get information to our clients. ATP is a big one for us right now. True ATP during configuration, understanding exactly when I'm going to get this particular configuration. And then maybe based on our product sourcing preferences, all right, show me the fastest configuration, show me the cheapest configuration, show me this configuration. So ATP is a big one for us right now. We we're always improving our capabilities. I'd say our configuration engine will probably be a little bit different. Everything we build is in self-service manner. So even the most complex configuration, your product expert can come in, drag and drop rules, create instead of having to rely on a programmer. The other area that we probably won't touch and we don't do well, you know, we have a front end. It's more of a business focused front end, you know, sales tool, all the different parties. We're not a CMS tool. We probably never will be a CMS tool. If you need a storefront, use us in a headless manner. So there's, there's definitely distinctions that we know when we walk into a room, somebody's looking for a commerce platform or CMS tool. That's not us. Thanks. Thanks for speaking to us. If you need us in, in another six months or so, I'm more than happy to speak again, but we know the room that we fit in. Yeah. So I think that's where we're looking ahead right now in terms of functionality that's out there. And of course, our clients, you know, help drive that roadmap as they see fit for what they're trying to do. And we say, okay, this makes a lot of sense for us. Let's bring it in house. Uh, that helps drive it as well. Yeah, it makes sense. Look, you're never going to be able to be all things to all people. So specializing in being super clear in what your use case is that fits really well and what your ICP, your ideal customer profile looks like. But ATP feels like a, a natural vector to really get better penetration of the market. And so for those that aren't familiar with the term, available to purchase is a common terminology used in the B2B world, especially with complex configurated products, because you might be grabbing components in that bomb from five different suppliers. And generally speaking, you will have availability from those five different suppliers of those five different components. And usually the furthest out availability becomes the availability to, to, to purchase time frame for that customer. Right. Because for all intents and purposes, you can't sell it until you've got all the components uh, of that product. And so being able to message that and assemble it and all that, when the bundling and the kitting process might be taken, might happen under one roof, and then the, the fulfillment might happen under another roof. And so that there's also availability to not only availability to purchase, but also availability to deliver. And I think there's, and then there is estimated shipping times for those, those, both those components as well as a complete product. And so I think being able to message that super transparently, just like in the B2C, D2C world, we want to be as transparent as we can. And 
we can't be transparent, even if we want to be, if we don't have all the information. We don't, if we don't have the component information, if we don't have the calendar availability of the installer, if we don't have, if we don't have all these things in our system, or at least access to those things in real time via API, we can't be transparent as much as we would like to be. And so I think that feels like a really natural vector for you to be able to bring higher levels of transparency to be purchases and B2B experiences. Now, what also, when we think about that sort of forward-looking thing, how do you guys make your money? Now, usually with platforms like yours, when they're suite-based like you are, and you may not take the whole suite, it's usually either on a per-seat basis inside the business. It's usually based on either a transactional basis, the number of transactions, the size of the catalog, which modules you take on, and, and you're fairly and squarely in the enterprise space. There's no, let's not argue about that. You're not going to be able to go ever be a Shopify and have, say, right. hey, we got, the, we got these four tiers, one's 50 bucks a month all the way up to two and a half grand a month, and let's call it good. That's not the way you guys work. And most, most enter, I, I, I think enterprise software could probably get to that point a lot. But for you guys, how do you price and sell your product in the market? Is it a combination of all the above? No. So we actually do at a much more expensive than Shopify, but it's a flat rate. One of the challenges with that we saw in the market was the cost of innovation, right? I need a new license or I need a new seat. I need a hundred new seats. I, I'm getting hit with all these API charges and, and this idea of composable where now it's 10 of those things that are, that are hitting me. So for us, it's one fee, uh, a license to the platform. You get, a, you get access to everything, right? Because there's not a commerce module and a CPQ module. You get access to all the capabilities. No restrictions on uh, API call seats, storage, anything like that, right? What we do additionally, so every client gets a realm uh, within our platform and really that holds their database and kind of their customizations, right? Their little area for security purposes. If they have different business units that may you know, be drastically different, the data needs to be represented. You can buy an additional realm within the system, right? That's it. You know your costs every single month. It's not fluctuating based on usage. You start growing. You're not going to get hit with additional licenses or additional recurring payments. So we wanted to give our clients the ability to be innovative and say, hey, I have this. Let's give it a shot versus what is this going to cost me to do, right? So that's one of the big areas we wanted to address uh, within our platform. Very nice. And what would be, just so that everybody out there understands a ballpark figure for what they could expect to pay. Let's say there's somebody out there and they're really interested in the platform. They fit the, the mold of the perfect ICP for you guys. What could they expect to pay roughly on average for month uh, for everything in your system? So, so what we do is we do 350000 a year, right? So for these large manufacturers and to, to be able to support all these the different end-to-end processes, that's what we charge, right? So you can do the math backwards. And of course, we... About 30 grand a month. Clients. Ba- yes, ba- right. you know, ballpark 30 right. grand a month, right. which in, in, a, in, a, in an enterprise B2B and environment is generally these businesses are, are doing something in the neighborhood of kind of 50 to 500 million a year in, in right. business. And so when you reverse engineer that back as a percentage, and especially if they can get good buy-in from their B2B customers in terms of adoption and the reduction in spend that they're going to have to put into a field sales team. For example, if your e-commerce platform can replace one field sales rep that's getting paid 200 grand a year, right? Geez, you've made back a significant portion of your spend on the e-commerce platform, right? Or five CPQ licenses and, and the commerce license, right? Maybe you have three commerce systems floating out there and you're, you know, you're wondering, should I renew this, re-up this license? And that's really where customers start to see a lot of the value is. Initially, we're looking at this use case. We can come in and sit on top of everything, quarterback it. Now, what is it that I can start the sunset if I choose to do, right? And that's where you really start to see the value within Viax. 
And one of the final things that is oftentimes tricky or a little bit more complex or a little bit more expensive in the B2B world is system integrations. Because usually in the B2C, D2C world, maybe we got to integrate with one ERP, one PIM, maybe one PLM system, one, one system of record that doesn't sit in the commerce platform. But in the B2B world, oftentimes that's not the case. Oftentimes there, there's, it's a multi-headed hydra of integrations. Now you guys don't pitch yourself is an iPaaS platform. So in your experience, do you generally find that your merchants that come to you, they'll already have an integration middleware platform when they get to you, or will they be looking to effectively adopt along with the implementation of your platform? They need to now start thinking about, okay, maybe we've got these point systems tying everything together with spit and bailing wire, but we now need to move to a more unified system because Viax is gonna become the beating heart of our commerce, the commerce side of our business, at least the customer facing piece. Now we need to do all these system integrations, which can be a heavy lift for a lot of brands. How do you guys think about system integrations? Because as you say, in many respects, you might be adopted as a headless platform. Yeah, it is one of the first and foremost key parts of our platform, right? It's definitely something that started, you know, you have to have it, right? The one, the complex integrations between these systems is the number one headache for these manufacturers. So the three tenets of our architecture is the event-driven architecture, this workflow and process orchestration engine. And then our middleware. So every client, we come out of the box with the middleware. Uh, it's based on an open source tool called CamelK. CamelK provides hundreds of adapters to all the popular systems. So your SAP, Salesforce's, Oracle's. So we can get you up and running most likely way faster than having to support your own middleware, right? Supports every possible protocol, file formats. So it, it's at the forefront of everything that we do and all of our clients use it. Everyone has access to it. But it's one of the differentiating factors. I think a lot of platforms look at it as they'll fend for themselves, right? The clients. And again, going back to what I've seen earlier, yeah, they all have some middleware, probably multiple tools that they're using. Never really done well because you, you never get out of that mode of you know innovation and out of the, excuse me, you never get into the innovation mode and you're more in just maintaining type mode. And this is just something else you have to maintain. You're probably relying on a third-party partner to an SI to do the implementation of it. So for us, that's a must-have provided at the box. And for Shopify, for big, whatever, in the B2C, DTC world, the largest customers, they, Shopify doesn't do implementations. Big commerce doesn't do implementations. They have agency partners that do the implementations right. of their platform. Now, in the B2B world, what I have oftentimes found is that the implementations, at least initially, when a platform is relatively new, they have to seed the market with implementation. So it means that whether they like it or not, they got to do the first handful of implementations. Then when they've proven themselves in the market and there's a little bit of demand, then they can start bringing on really good implementation partners and SI. They can own the implementation. Maybe you help with the scoping. Maybe you help with the initial solution architecture, or at least supporting the SI from a solution architecture perspective. But then most product companies don't also want to be service providers and managed service providers and professional services providers because it's difficult to do both. So do you guys have partners that you work with or are you still in the phase of, hey, we need to own the vast majority of these implementations ourselves, otherwise it, it potentially isn't going to be done right uh, as we're still seeding the market. Now, you're not brand new. It's not like you're less than a year old. You're almost six years old now. So the reality is I'm guessing that you maybe have a bit of a combined go-to-market approach where you've got some agency and SI partners, but then you have a big hand in most implementations as well. Yeah. So it is that. So we definitely have implementation partners. What we do for new clients is we offer uh, proof of value, which is usually about two to four weeks where we do the implementation ourselves. We may have a partner running alongside of us. We'll pick a use case. So we'll do that implementation get them comfortable with the system, get the SI comfortable with maybe the project. And that's really 
production ready code. This is not a, a spaghetti, you know, throwaway code at the, at the end of it. So that, that's typically how we operate and then we let our SIs run with it. But what we do is two things. We have a customer success uh, team that is involved in every uh, project. Uh, but the other thing that we do because of the way that we're architected and the way that we look at these end-to-end processes, we, we run what's called these one-order workshops, right? So every client that we engage with, we'll bring our partner in and we'll get the business teams in, we'll get the tech teams in. And we have a methodology where we'll look at that end-to-end process. We'll get all the parties involved. We'll get all the systems we need to integrate with. And, and at the output of that is actually the workflow and the system kind of diagram of end-to-end process. And then we can hand that off to the SI. They have had start on it. The business team knows and understands events. Okay, this person logged in and did this. Yeah, I need to be able to describe those things. So these one-order workshops are something that we run typically every two months. And then once the SI is comfortable doing it themselves, we take a back seat and, and participate, but don't lead those. Uh, and they've been really successful. Uh, we, we've gotten some great feedback from C-Level you know, that they've, they've never seen their team operate uh, in this manner. The silos are being broken down because of the way that we've set up the system and the language we allow people to speak to build requirements and to understand this end-to-end process. Wow, absolutely incredible. And if people want to get a hold of you and find out more about Viax, I'll put all the links, of course, in the show notes to the website and to, to your LinkedIn. But just for everybody out there wondering, Viax, V-I-A-X dot I-O is your website. And then you're also on, on LinkedIn under Larry Ramponis. Ramponis. Yeah. How do you like people to generally find out more or get in touch with you guys? Do you prefer LinkedIn? Do you prefer website? Do you have a preference? Link, LinkedIn is fine. You go to the website, you go to the chatbot. If you want to contact me directly, lramponi.advix.io is my email address. And even if it's just a conversation to learn more or just talk like we, we have here at Talk Shop, I'm more than happy to hop on a phone call. Absolutely. Go for it. Love it. Listen, I appreciate your time. We're coming to the close of our time together. And this is where I get to flip the script and hand the microphone over to you. I get to let you ask me one question, any question you like, it can be personal or professional. So Larry Ramponi from Viax.co, what is your question for me today? My question, I, I guess one of the uh, questions we're always interested in, what, what are just the challenges that I, I think we in B2B, we always look to the B2C, D2C, the AI and the ML and a lot of these guys are still working in spreadsheets. And what, what are some of these challenges that you see just getting to that, out of that maintaining level where I guess some of the common challenges that you hear from uh, in your talks here? It's probably two, especially for the B2B space. The two that I hear most often are organization, organizational change management is really difficult in the B2B space where there's a lot of legacy verticals. There's a lot of legacy categories. There's a lot of legacy brands. Oftentimes, they have come from a place of monopoly. So a lot of these B2B brands that have been around forever, or they've been a, a distributor of a product for 20, 30, 40, 50, in some cases, 100 years. There's a lot of entrenched monopolistic behavior, and it doesn't lend itself to being that flexible as a business because they've never had to be flexible because they're like the single source for certain industrial products, whatever it might be. Uh, or there's Goliaths in the space that are so big that they, they monopolize 80, 90% of the sales, in which case they have no incentive to change. I think the second one is sales teams and sales team resistance. I'm having to develop almost a playbook of consulting that's just for that piece because oftentimes sales teams, they see, they see one click sales. They see replenishment sales via digital channels as, as a total threat to the sales org and they see it as a replacement for the sales org. And I 100% do not see it like that. I see it as an enablement tool of, of the sales org. I see sales teams actually benefiting from that and getting away from all the admin functions that sales teams usually have to do that absolutely hate. I don't know a salesperson on the planet that likes admin 
and sales teams can spend up to 50, 60% of their time just on admin functions and manually inputting orders into ERPs, et cetera. And so if we can enable and empower sales teams and show them what that means and allow them to, to own and maintain named accounts and they get credit for all sales, regardless of the channel it comes through, then I could usually have a pretty productive conversation with sales teams and get them on board and excited about a digital project. But certainly those are probably two areas, organizational change management, resistance of sales teams. And then I think probably the final one there is leadership. And I think that within these businesses, particularly if they've never done e-commerce before and it's their first go at this, or maybe they got a 10-year-old e-commerce platform that sits in a corner in a server room somewhere and they really don't, they don't advocate it. They don't recommend it. They don't use it. It's there. It's been ticking away in the background. I mean, maybe it sees a few orders a month, but it's not, it's not part of the beating heart of their business operationally. I think anytime we can get management and leadership excited about the transformative, positive power of digital in their business and the kind of efficiencies that it can bring to their business, and more importantly, the customer experience improvements that it brings to their business, unless they're bought in at the most senior level of the business, especially when we're talking heavyweight, complex B2B platforms that are expensive, relatively speaking, they're expensive. And sometimes they're the same cost as the ERP, for example. They, they might be spending they might be spending 350 grand a year on their ERP today. And, and then all of a sudden now they're staring down the barrel of spending 350 grand a year on their commerce system. And they're going, why would I do that? I've already gotten the ERP, right? And so if you can't, if you can't have that conversation, if there's not the level of openness, I, I never sell the unsellable. I never try to. So if basically I'm on an initial call with a prospect and they're looking for a consultant to come in and hold their hand through the process, but they're not really genuinely bought into this whole concept of digital enablement. I, I walk away because I know that the trough of despair during these large scale implementations, what happens? And if they lose the faith halfway through the project, then that's when projects tend to fail. But if they're absolutely going to do this, regardless of, of how much intermediate pain they may have to swallow to, to re-engineer processes and, and translate analog processes into digital equivalents and, and the like, if they're really bought into that, then I'm, I'm bought into that. I'm all in on that. But it really, it comes down to, I don't want to have to convince any business that digital transformation makes sense for them. And the final piece I'd add to this, and I know it's a bit of a long-winded answer, but I try to be really crystal clear, especially with B2B orgs, that digital is a journey. It is not a destination. This is not going to be a one-and-done project. It, 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 you have to be bought into this as the key driver of customer experience in your business, because it's the system that will face the customer the most in the business. And if you're not bought into that for the seriously long term, then just don't even bother because this will be, there's a lot of people that will be pulled off of BAU business as usual to help get these systems implemented. And you also have to look at the long-term resource management around these systems and processes and say, look, we're going to have to maybe do some org design on organization. We may not have the resources internally today to be able to leverage these systems to their full potential. So we're maybe going to have, maybe going to, have to do some process re-engineering. We're maybe going to have to do some org design re-engineering uh, to fully support uh, these channels within the business and this new way of working. And sales teams will have to work in these systems too because they're customer facing. And so, yeah, th th that's a long-winded way of saying, I think that just the change management piece is the piece and, and getting everybody on the bus. Because what I find is even in very large B2B organizations, oftentimes they either don't have a marketing department at all, or they've maybe got one marketing manager. Whereas in B2C, D2C world, marketing drives everything. They own, the, they usually own the budget for commerce, right? 
And so therefore, you're usually when you're doing scoping and, and all the engineering and solution design and everything else, that usually is led by the marketing customer experience teams. In the B2B world, it's usually led by the sales teams or the ops or IT teams, right? So in the B2B world, you're dealing with operators. You're dealing with hardcore IT people. You're dealing with hardcore operations managers. You're dealing with hardcore sales managers that, are, that need to drive revenue for the business. And so you're dealing with these serious operators that are seriously managed and KPI'd and they got frameworks around their roles, CTO, CIOs, et cetera. Th those are usually what you're dealing with in the B2B world. So it's a totally different kettle of fish. It's, it's, you're not dealing with people that are worried about pixel perfect design and all the bells and whistles around the, the UX. You're dealing with people that functionally in a business are doing all the heavy lifting of sales. And if, if you're going to be bringing in and trying to bring in a solution that doesn't tick all those boxes for them, you're going to get your ass kicked to the curb. So that's the thing that I'm seeing. Yeah, yeah. The, the fear of change, right, is, is what drives a lot of this is great. The only other, so one question, just quickly, just very curious, yeah, especially the startup, what is that characteristic or that client has, right? The, the one who gets it, is it innovation? Is it they, they're disruptors? Or what, what is it that you see that ideal customer, right? Because we, we need to get that profile and we need to sell to the right people. And we need to know right away that this isn't that person, right? What is it maybe two or three characteristics of that person, that, that ideal customer? It's generally one of two things. It's either the leadership of the business has changed, meaning that oftentimes I go into businesses that are maybe 50-year-old, family-owned, they're still privately-owned companies, and maybe the grandfather or the father founded the, the company, and now the son or the daughter, the granddaughter, the grandson are now taking over the business as a key leadership team member in the business, and they realize they're young, maybe they're a millennial or whatever it might be, and they're taking over the business, and they realize, well, geez, we're so far behind, uh, we're playing catch up and we have to do this. We know the writing is on the wall for these physical in-person field sales team processes. And we got to do this. We have to bite the bullet. We got to own this and we have to be better. We have to do better. If we want to survive and be relevant, we have got to do this no matter how difficult it is. Those are the ones that generally I see super good results with because there's been a leadership change in the business and they get it, right? Or somebody's passed away or somebody's left the board because they're old and they're retiring. And so you're getting a wholesale change of management. So you're getting a whole new management style and a whole new management focus that can oftentimes, because they're undergoing so much change in the business anyway, just in the swap over of leadership. Now, all of a sudden to think about digital channels at the same time becomes a whole lot more natural because it becomes part of the conversation of that change management. The second one is where they, a merchant is getting incredible pressure from their customers. They're already saying, hey, you, you don't offer me e-commerce. Look, I, I need you to offer me e-commerce. Sure, if we're a massive B2B customer, then maybe we would do EDI. If we've got a punch-outs or procurement system, maybe we need punch-out capability. But for everybody in that fat middle who's not super tiny and is not going to be faxing your orders, and they're not so big that they need EDI, they want to do their replenishment ordering through e-commerce channels that is, is self-service, right? And if they are putting, or if a significant, percentage of the customer base of that B2B brand is putting pressure on them and saying, when is your e-commerce function going to be ready? I'm going to be, I'm going to start looking for another supplier. If you guys don't have e-commerce available to us within the next year, because it is making us less efficient to have to send you a CSV file that you put it into an ERP, whatever. So those are the two. It's either the organizations that are, have a really heavy push top down, or they've got a really heavy push bottom up from customers saying, and basically saying, we're going to we're gonna stop doing business with you if you don't sort your shit out when it comes to e-commerce. And so right. the, those, the, and in both of those cases, so long as the urgency is there, 
then they will bear the typical pain that you have to go through when you're implementing these large scale system changes. They'll bear the pain because they know they have no other choice and they know it's a must, it's a must do in the organization. So that, that's what I'm seeing. Are you seeing similar kind of things happening in the, in the market? Yeah. Yeah. One of the, and, and you hit on it. I think one of the, the key traits is, you know, almost newness to the company in the sense where they're not afraid to ruffle some feathers and make change and, and push change. I think, especially in the space, like you said, somebody has been there for 50 years and there's a lot of that. And it's great. There's families that have worked together and people that live in small towns that are, which is amazing. But when you get that person in there who's looking to drive change, I think that's where we see a lot of success. Absolutely. Listen, Larry, it has been a fantastic conversation with you. I super appreciate your time and I cannot wait to have a chat with you again and see where Viaxis has gone in that intervening time. Are you a B2B or D2C e-commerce merchant? Then head over to greenwoodconsulting.net to learn how we can help you scale your business.